pretty funny side story to that was freshman year, we all move in together, and at one point, Dave Kempfert and I, we relay the story about how we were over and viewed our senior years for the state basketball tournament. And we remembered running into a group of Butte guys at a gas station. And they were like... Well, that's terrifying. Right, to start, to start yeah. with. So right there, you know you're in a bad situation. <laughs> and, and they're like, hey, you guys are from Hellgate. You guys should... We're having a big kager up in the hills. You guys should come with us. It's awesome. And Dave and I kind of huddled, and we're like, mm, something ain't right here. Uh, let's say no. So we said no. <laughs> Didn't think anything of it. And then, you know, next year later, we're roommates with these guys, and they're like, oh, yeah, we totally remember that night. We tried to get you and Kemford out to the hills. We were just going to beat the crap out of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ah, you beaut guys. <laughs> Welcome to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions alongside Colton Nuanez. I am Ryan Tutel, and we are very happy on this episode to welcome in a lifelong, not just Montanan, but Missoulian, a graduate of Missoula Hellgate High School and the leading tackler, as it turned out, on the 1995 National Championship team, Mike Boucher. Coulter, Mike's story is as Missoula as it could possibly get from being born and bred in the city to going to college six blocks from where he went to high school to his father being one of the integral members of the community to help bolster Grizzly football throughout the 80s and 90s. Mike Boucher is a central figure in the story of the 1995 National Championship team. A second-generation Grizzly, his father Bill Boucher played for the Grizzlies back in the 1950s. And Mike carried on that family legacy at the University of Montana. And like so many guys on this 1995 team, a kid that grew up in Montana wanting to become a Grizzly, got an opportunity to become a Grizzly, and then became a great Grizzly, an all-big sky performer, 90-plus tackles, running that inside linebacker spot. And what you need on every football team, a connector, the guy that brought everybody together, the guy that made the offensive lineman and the defensive lineman go have dinner together or live together. His engagement, his intellectuality, the way he's able to communicate, you could see why he was a connector on that team and remained so successful in his personal life, his business life to this day. This was a fun one, guess. Like you said, this guy, Mike Boucher, he is Missoula to the T. He came into the studio wearing his Pearl Jam shirt. He talked all the things like all the all the great things about the city of Missoula, what it's meant to him throughout his great life, and told a ton of great stories. This is one of the best interviews of this series. Very interesting, unbelievable memories. Some very unique memories compared to a lot of his teammates as well. Great storyteller. So we're happy to present this Grizz Greats to you, Mike Boucher, Missoula Hellgate product, and a starting middle linebacker as a junior for the 1995 Grizz National Champions. Mike, thank you so much for coming in studio all the way down here. Look at this. This is fantastic to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great, guys, and feels good to be here in the studio with you and actually see people in person. So Yeah, right. It's, uh, it's good to get out of the office and, and be around people. Uh, our, we are in a new studio, uh, relatively speaking, and it has uh, afforded us a lot more room that we didn't know we were going to be so it was going to be so useful to us, but it is. And so it's good to have you in here. We're, uh, we're happy to have you. Obviously, uh, so much to get to. But one thing that I've found uh, that's interesting here is in this series we've done, we have talked to so many guys 
and from a player standpoint, I don't know if we've talked to anybody yet that hasn't been a Montana guy, right? A, a, mm-hmm. a Montana. Uh, uh, Matt, Matt Wells from Oregon. Yeah, yep. that's true. Matt Wells came from Oregon yep. uh, uh, originally. And uh, a couple other guys, uh, Brian Toon finished his junior and senior year in Butte, but was from Washington State originally in that. But point being, a ton of guys from Montana on that team. Not very many guys from Missoula, though, playing in Missoula. A lot of guys from Kalispell, Helena, Butte, around. For you, what did it mean to you to play for the University of Montana, being from Missoula and and tied to this town the way that you were? Would you go back to your days at Hellgate and even before? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think for me, it it was really the the honor of a lifetime to be able to play for the Grizzlies. I, I. Growing up here in Missoula, I just was born and raised in the a grizzly town among grizzly fans. Um, my my father actually he was a tight end and DN for the Grizzlies back right. in the late fifties, early sixties, uh, back in the Carlson era. Um, so I I really grew up around the Grizzlies. Uh, we went to every game. My family it was something that we did. Uh, on during every fall, and we'd go down to the the old games there at uh, at Dornblazer sure. of all places. And I can distinctly remember going to games at Dornblazer with I don't know maybe a thousand other people or whatever fit in there. Right. And uh, I <clears throat> I can remember going and painting the bleachers green with the rest of the community and volunteering to do that. And um, so from a very early age, I was steeped in sort of this Grizz tradition. Um, and so it was always something that I, I strove to be a part of, um, because my, my dad had done it and I wanted to do it. And I, I grew up loving football at a very early age. Um, I was a younger brother and I grew up playing football at the park with my older brother and his friends. It was always tackle football. And, uh, I loved that. I knew at a very early age that football was the game for me. And uh, used to take a lot of pride in being one of the very first picks with these older kids and then, like, tackling the crap out of them. I used to love to hit people from a very early age, like bigger, older kids. And so it it clicked with me. But um, to be able to finally, um, you know, get through Little Grizzly football and, and my time at Hellgate and be given the opportunity to play for the Grizzlies and to put on one of those uniforms was was the honor of a lifetime for me. Who was your favorite Grizz when you were a kid? Uh, you know, I I grew up. Uh, I remember Marty Morningwig playing mm-hmm. quarterback back in the day. He was super exciting. Um, um, probably Marty Morningwig is the one that I remember the most from my childhood. What about Dad? For crying out loud! I mean, <laughs> no. well, he, he, I, I realize you probably weren't front and center for for those ones, so I understand. Yeah, yeah, I thought of the ones that I'd watch. <laughs> sure, certainly. yeah, and in fact, I uh, even when I was a little kid, one of our our very good family friends. In fact, I, I would say he was almost like a, a god brother of mine from Butte, Zach Peters. He played for the Bobcats in the mid eighties and was on their, their alleged national championship team out there. But, um, I, I could remember when they came and played in Missoula and the Grizzlies beat them. And he was stood outside the locker room, waited to talk to us. And I was just a little shaver and I didn't know any better. And I sat there and chanted poor Bobcats at this guy. And he probably wanted to just crush me, but he was so polite. And so I, 
from a very early age, I was indoctrinated into the whole Grizz Cat thing. <laughs> was there any pressure growing up, being that you were the son of a grizzly? Uh, no. No, I would say that, that my dad was... Uh, he never applied pressure for me to play football, for me to become a Grizzly. Uh, in fact, he always encouraged me to play as many sports and do as many activities as I could. And then um, when it became apparent that I might have a future in college and to be able to play on, uh, and I was expressing interest in Montana, he said, well, make sure that you're looking at other schools, look at your other opportunities. Don't become a grizzly because of me you know he was he was very careful about that so i i was doing it because of my own desires not because of some desire to please him or take yeah. us back to hellgate uh in the uh, in the early 90s and the 80s even the late 80s because you know we know that hellgate has really struggled in football in recent years although on the comeback here the last couple of years uh under coach morris but you know, for a long time, a great, you know, great tradition of football there. What was it like for you when you were playing high school football? Uh, you know, Hellgate wasn't winning a lot of games when I was growing up. Uh, my, my brother went through Hellgate a few years ahead of me, and so I watched a lot of Hellgate games. And they weren't winning city championships, and they, they were kind of having a hard time winning. And uh, when we came through, we, we had a pretty good class of guys, and we kind of helped to build that program back up uh, to a pretty respectable program. And we got to the state championship, yeah. actually, our senior year against Butte. And then uh, was it the, the year following that, maybe, Hel or two years following two years that? Following, yeah, Hellgate was three, back yeah. in the national title game against Big Sky. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it felt like maybe we'd had an impact and had built something that other people wanted to par participate in. So that, that felt really good to help build that program there. And we had great coaches. That was back with Van Troxel, mm -hmm. if you guys remember that sure. name. Just ground and pound. We'd run that football like crazy. And uh, so it was it was a lot of fun to to be a part of that and building a program and trying to strive for something bigger than the program had achieved. And actually coming out here to the university in some ways it was a little bit of a similar dynamic. Although the university had enjoyed greater success, we came in and it was like, okay, what do we do to build this program and take it to the next level? What do we want to be a part of here? Managing the security of your business network is a full-time job. Why not take it off your daily list of things to think about and call Blackfoot Communications? With Blackfoot Managed Security Services, you can tap into our expertise to deploy, maintain, and monitor your network security from the edge to the endpoint. Spend no more time worrying about safe business transactions and communications. Call today, 541-5000, or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot, connect to more. When you uh, graduated from Hellgate, you, know, the, you already said, you know, the onus was on you. you. You wanted to go to the University of Montana and play. Obviously, you have all the ties in the world being in town, your father, everything else. But obviously, the team has to want you to come play for them, too. And what was it like? What was, what was the conversation? Not even really a recruiting pitch, perhaps, but like, hey, this is what we expect out of you. This is what we think is possible for you. Did you feel like you had a, a, a fair shake? Obviously, it became 
that, but did you think when you went into that place that, okay, yeah, I can really come in here and be an impact guy. I can develop and, and, and be a, a big part of this thing. Or was it like, man, I don't know where I fit in here. I'm not sure how this is going to go. Like, what was your experience as you entered, left, you know, walked six blocks West and went to, uh, went to the university of Montana or East, I guess it is. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, that that first fall, uh, we start having team meetings, and you start to meet these seniors and juniors, and these guys ahead of you, and these guys that you strive to replace someday. And and I gotta tell you, it was pretty intimidating. That yeah. was back in the days of Chad Lemke at middle linebacker. Like, talk about an imposing, tough guy for sure. Um, and and then I had Garrett Venner's and Dennis Skates ahead of me, and. There were some incredible players in that linebacker room, Kurt Schilling, Dan Downs. Like These guys were fantastic players, and it was really easy for self-doubt to creep in. Like, am I good enough to play here? Can I, can I play at this level? Uh, and I'll tell you, that's a heck of a motivator. So uh, for me, I just tried to turn that into motivation to get in the weight room and get stronger, get faster, eat a lot. Was there a moment though when you uh, when you said, "Hey, like, no, I can do this"? Do you have a memory of a, of a practice or a game or something like that, or was it a gradual, okay, like I, you kind of worked into it where you where you found that confidence that I I can do this at a high level and at this level? Mm, it, it it was gradual. You know, I my first year there, I redshirted, so I I had all sorts of self-doubts at that point and you know wondering if I was gonna make it at that level and until you get on the field you never know um, so the following years a redshirt freshman I finally got on the field and started to do some special teams and just slowly working into it yeah um, I, I gained the confidence and knew that I was at a level that I could play at and succeed at I I, I gained that confidence but it, it did take time what do, you remember, what do you remember about the class you came in with uh a few things stand out about that class. Uh, number one is the quality of people in that class, the quality of guys. Um, and this is apart from what good football players they were. Uh, just across the board, they were great people, and we all quickly became very good friends. Uh, our, our class bonded very quickly. A lot of Montana guys with similar backgrounds, uh, who were coming into the program from a similar place. But even our out-of-state guys who, who didn't know the Montana tradition uh, came in ready to learn, ready to be a part of it and excited about that. And I think our enthusiasm as in-state guys really rubbed off. And, you know, these out-of-state guys, they, they really got into what it means to be a Montana Grizzly and uh, you know, to dislike the Bobcats and some of those things. And so our, our class was great guys that uh, were incredibly close, and I think that is really what made us a good team down the line. Uh, but then we quickly found out there were a lot of very good football players in that class too, and so we just felt like we were in a great place and we had a really special opportunity ahead of us if we did the right things. The outlier, of course, being Blaine McElmurray, who's not a good guy or a good football player, just kind of a bad seed, right? You can say we can tell you the truth about Blaine for crying out loud, don't we? Well, that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you uh, – uh, you said – 
before way before we started this, but you know, you, you, your junior year, which was the '95 season, was actually your first year starting. And you, you know, you your opportunities early on, but especially as a linebacker, I mean, we always <laughs> the linebacking line at Montana is very long. It's decades long that you wait to get into uh, to to play linebacker for the Grizzlies, right? So when this team, which had been building, and Dave Dickinson is firmly established, you know, as the quarterback, obviously his senior season, and and there's these huge aspirations, and now you're stepping into this every game type of role, you know, being being you know the guy in the middle in a lot of ways. There, what was that like? Did you feel pressure in that, or were you just excited? Hey, it's my turn. I get to do this now. There might have been a little pressure just because the the program had become so successful so quickly in the in the previous years, really building from. 86 with the construction of the stadium and Don Reed coming in, the playoff run in 88 and 89, trying to build on those things. Um, So we sort of felt the pressure that we needed to build on that success. We needed to somehow take the program to another level from where we were in 94 when we'd lost in the semifinal at Youngstown. Uh, And in 95, we actually had a fairly inexperienced team coming back. I think we had 12 starters returning, um, whereas in 96 we had 18 starters returning. I mean, we were packed in 96, and I think there were a lot of questions going into 95. People knew that the Grizzlies had Dickinson. Um, You know, they had a few very good returning players, but there were a lot of holes on that team and a lot of questions, one of the big ones being linebacker, we had three new starting linebackers in 95, and so I think there was some uncertainty among the fan base. Uh, what was the state of the linebacker room going to be? And so um, we were determined that we were going to make that a, a, a better linebacking group, a better defense, and a better team than you know the previous year. You talk about that quest to help Montana take the next step to, to reach the next level. Early on in your career, did you guys consider what your place was within the Big Sky Conference and on the national landscape? Because it seemed as if there was a ton of competition. I mean, Idaho is a powerhouse at that point. Boise State was a powerhouse. I think they played for the national championship a couple of years after you joined the Grizzlies. And then there's obviously the, the national powers, too, like Youngstown, Georgia, Southern. So did you guys consider where Montana was at that time? Because it was a lot different than what it became. Yeah, probably when we started in 92 during our redshirt year and, you know, 93, our redshirt freshman year, uh, Montana had started to have some success, was starting to win some big games under Don Reed. Um, The players were improving. um, And the goal then was to win a Big Sky title. Right. Um, that, that was clearly the goal that Don Reed wanted to get the program to where we were w- able to win a Big Sky title and then repeat that feat. And so when we came in, I think the focus really was on the Big Sky Conference. What did we need to do to be the best team in the Big Sky Conference? And as a young player, I remember that being the focus. And it wasn't until we made that, that run in 94 that the conversation really started to become a larger one than that uh, about the Grizzlies' place nationally, not just within the conference. I think at that point we had kind of established our place as the the top team in the conference and started to look nationally, well, who are the big dogs? 
what level do we need to play at to beat these guys? And that's when you start looking at Marshall and Youngstown State and some of these other teams that had, had been the dominant programs up to that point. What do we need to do within our program to get to that level and then knock those guys off and take their place? It was interesting because today, and it was the case then too, if you were the champion of the Big Sky Conference, you were a nationally elite program. I mean, you're a national contender. He, the 95 you beat the pants off Boise State, who was the number three team in the nation the day that you played them. So winning the Big Sky sort of uh, presumes, implies a level of national prominence as well. That said, today, you can win whatever conference you want. North Dakota State's out there by themselves, right? And you got to sit here and look at and go, well, okay, it's all well and good. If we do this, we win Big Sky Conference. What does it mean to get to that point? You pointed out a couple of teams that were there. What was that step? What did you what from a program standpoint? What was the thing that you needed to do to to ascend to that spot? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. After we got knocked out in '94 by Youngstown State, uh, the guys that were coming back, and specifically, I'm I'm thinking about our defense and our linebacker room. We actually went back and watched film on Youngstown State to see what made them so good, and what immediately jumped out to us was the speed of their defense. They were so fast, and we knew that we somehow had to become faster. We had to play faster, and we had to be able to take our game up to another level once we got out of conference play. And I think that took us a few years of playoff competition to really learn that lesson and to figure out what it took to win in the playoffs, not just make the playoffs. And so I think by the time we got knocked out by Youngstown State, we watched them, we learned their lessons, and we came back ready to roll in 95 and to take our game to that next level and to play faster and to play harder than we did in the regular season. Coulter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have some financial backing to guarantee a home game. And former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics. And that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix, several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up. Certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, First Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. First Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. First Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. Do you feel that coming up short in 94 or 93 and 94, I mean, the devastating loss to Delaware in 93, the kind of lopsided loss at Youngstown State in 94, were those motivators, though, for the team? I mean, do you think that made you guys more hungry? Oh, absolutely. No, no question. Uh, this, this was a team that, that didn't take time off. I think we were incredibly motivated. Um, you know, very shortly after we'd lose those games, we were back in the weight room. We were back watching film. We were back trying to figure out where we came up short and what we needed to do to improve. And, um, you know, as I said, sort of my own 
fear and uncertainty was a great motivator for me individually. Well, our, I guess, our desire to win and take that team to the next level was an incredible motivator for our team to do what it took as a team to get there. Yeah. Motivation is obviously a key element of sports. Was it intrinsic for your group or where did it come from? Where did, where did you guys derive that from? I, I think we had a pretty unique group. Um, certainly our class, our, our 96 class was unique. I think we were all uh, incredibly self-motivated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we didn't need anybody to come in and light a fire under us. We didn't need Don Reed to come in and, you know, preach fire and brimstone and get us fired up. I think there was some, there was enough intrinsic motivation and a desire to succeed and to be the best players and to be the best team that it came from us rather than the coaches trying to convince us of something. It, it bubbled up from within the locker room, this desire to be great. Uh, and the coaches saw that and they really just nurtured that and, and helped germinate that and lead us to where we needed to be. But the motivation was absolutely coming from the players inside the program. And we had great leaders from, you know, Dave Dickinson and Johanse Manzanares and some of these older guys that led by example. Um, and, and they had their own fierce desire to win. Obviously, Dickinson is one of the most competitive guys I know. He will beat you at bowling. He'll beat you at golf. He'll beat you at <laughs> any game you can come up with. He's going to beat you. Um, and football is not an exception. So, um, it really did come from from the team itself and from the locker room. What do you remember? What stands out to you most, maybe, about Jerome Sowers uh, as a defensive coordinator, and uh, especially on a team? I feel like I asked this to all the defensive guys, but a team that seems like it's so well remembered for the offense and all of the, the spread concepts and all the things that look all of a sudden now like they were way ahead of their time, mm-hmm. and yet you're, the defense, especially late in that season, absolutely dominated. And w- w- what was it about that defense and, and Jerome that that made you guys so good? Hmm. That's a great question. I guess starting with Jerome, uh, the th- the thing that I think about with Jerome is he was he was a great tactician, uh, a great X's and O's coach, and uh, he he liked to be creative. He'd come up with a lot of different fronts and stunts and games that we would play, um, and so he wasn't running a a straight up vanilla defense by any means. He was he was very creative and trying to put us in the best positions to win. Um, so you, we were confident as players that Jerome and our defensive coaches were going to give us a game plan to succeed. Every week the game plan would change, you know, a small part to a significant part. And so we, we had confidence in the game plan. But then beyond that, Jerome was uh, – he was very intellectual in his approach to the game. He would read uh, The Art of War to us and really tried to bring an intellectual side to the game and to a defense and to our desire to dominate another group of men and beat them on the field. And so he would bring philosophy and an intellectual approach. And I'll tell you, I think we had a lot of smart guys on our team that really approached football from an intellectual standpoint that fed off that, that really liked that. And um, and sort of that intellectual side of the game is one of the things that gave us an edge um, in addition to just the closeness and the tightness within the locker room. We were going to play harder. We were going to play smarter. Uh, 
we weren't going to be the best athletes on the field. Very few times did I step on a football field and look across at the other football team and say, we've got the best group of athletes. They usually looked more athletic than us. They might have been bigger, stronger, (laughs) faster. But we had absolute confidence that we were going to beat whoever was on the other side of the field. Yeah, Coach Reeves, we haven't talked much about David Reeves in this, but he was the linebacker's coach of Montana for a long time, almost 10 years under under Don Reed. So a two-part question. First of all, what do you remember just about his coaching style? But secondly, heading into that 1995 season, what do you remember about the battle – to fill those linebacker spots. Because like you said, you haven't started yet. Jason Crebo hasn't started yet. David Servan hasn't started yet. Uh, Mike Kowalski's coming off an injury. So what do you remember just about that camp as well? But first, to start with Coach Reeves and, and just the way he operated your guys' room. Oh, man. Uh, Coach Reeves, uh, KV, as we call him, the caveman. Uh, <laughs> KV was a, a fantastic coach. I don't know that we could have had a, a really better coach uh, in the linebacker room. He, he made it a family atmosphere. In the linebacker room, uh, he cared deeply about each and every one of us, and he made sure that we cared about each other. Um, and that was one of the, another thing that made us quite a good team is that you never wanted to let down the other guys in the room, the other guys on the team. And so he was very good at fostering that. But um, he was also very much a player's coach. He was a guy that you could go and talk to about anything, whether it was something on the field or off the field. And he certainly helped us with both. Uh, he he has a huge heart. He's just an awfully nice guy. Um, I I think the world of Caveman, and he was he was a great linebacker coach and very good at the fundamentals of playing linebacker. Right, so he made sure that his players were prepared and had the fundamentals down to go succeed. Um, in terms of going into that '95 season, yeah, we had all new linebackers, but we had so many questions on defense uh, the d-line mm-hmm. it was really the the defensive backfield was was kind of set because blaine had been starting by that point and so there wasn't as many unknowns in the backfield but the front seven there were there were quite a few unknowns at that point and in the linebacker room uh i i think it was there was some competition but i think going into 95 it was fairly settled um, who the starters were going to be. It was just a matter of getting the three of us to work together and to become the best cohesive unit that we could be as quickly as we could. In that 95 season, uh, we have talked so much to, to a lot of the guys we've talked about, about the Washington State game, the Boise State game, the Idaho game, and obviously all three home playoff games in the national championship, which we'll get to. Remarkably, the one game that we really have not touched on in this entire series about anybody is the Cat Grizz game. Mm. And that game is the last game of the regular season. You are a proud Missoulian, mm-hmm. w- which brings it home even more to you. Mm-hmm. This is a game that you're losing, which had, had, you know, Montana just beats Montana State at this point in time. 25 20 going into the fourth quarter. Dave Dickinson in the offense, okay, three touchdowns. You end up winning by 11, I think 42-33, final that. Nine, right. nine points, nine points. That's Get right. my math right. That's right. But, uh, you know, we had an open question on our, on our radio show. Would it be better to win a national championship or win 
the rivalry game. I mean, it's like an open question in this state right now. It feels like as whether you'd rather be a national champion or just win the Grizz Cat football game. In that game, the last game of the regular season, what do you remember about it? And was that it feels like it actually wasn't as big a deal to guys on that team as it feels like it now is? What is your impression of that, though, being the being the voice of Missoula here now? Yeah, no, I, I think you've hit on a good point, and I I think you're on to something there because the, the Cats, while being a rivalry game and an important game, they were not the biggest game on, on the schedule simply because they, they were not that talented back then. They were not that good of a team. Uh, we definitely had bigger circles around, you know, Boise was a huge revenge game mm-hmm. for us. Oregon State, Idaho, there were big games on the schedule. The Cats were a big game in the sense of a tradition, but not a huge game at that point because we were so damn confident that we were going <laughs> to beat them. We just knew we were going to beat the Bobcats. Yeah. And so I would say we were already looking ahead to the playoffs when we played that Bobcat game and we started out a little slow and we gave them more hope than we needed to. Um, and like you say, it was a close game going into the fourth quarter and our coaches just looked at us like, what in the hell is going on here, guys? And, you know, we kind of snapped it back into place and finished the game off. But uh, in terms of huge games, at that point, the Cats, they were and they weren't. They just were not competitive enough to be a monster game on the schedule. We were looking at where... Our biggest challenges lied, and the Bobcat game wasn't one of the biggest challenges on the schedule. Is there, do you have any definitive memories from that season or just from you know your junior or senior year just about players in the league that you were excited to face off against or, or maybe that had a reputation around the big sky? Uh, Boise. Boise had a, a huge uh, mark on them because of what they'd done to the previous season. Right. When they Runner they absolutely whooped us down there. Mm-hmm. And then they ended up playing in the national title game, mm-hmm. losing to Youngstown. So for mm-hmm. us, Boise was the benchmark. And they have a coach that's from Missoula, right? I mean, Pokey Allen's from Missoula Sentinel, so that adds to the rivalry a little bit too. It, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. So we, we were looking at that, that Boise game – you know, from the very end of the 94 season, we were watching Boise play in the national title game, and we're thinking, how do we beat these guys? Mm-hmm. We've got to get ourselves in a place where we can beat them. And they came into Missoula. Tony Hildy was their quarterback, and they had some fantastic players. And they had just whooped us, and we completely turned the tables on them. That was that was a an ass kicking. Was in that any sense of the word? Was that too also? I mean, it's really about a third of the way through the season. When when you do that in the fashion that you do that against a team who's a defending national champion, you know, appearance, uh, national championship appearance, you go, oh, okay, yeah, this is what we are. This is this is who we are. Maybe we are now the team that is not just that isn't just going to be a Big Sky Conference champion, but we can we can go the whole way here. Yeah, and 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 that's true. And I would say that going into '95, our goals were to be. Big Sky champions, get to the playoffs, be national champions. I mean, a, a goal in 95 season was to be the national champion, without a doubt, and we knew we had to get through Boise. Uh, and so when we beat them as badly as we did and sort of building on the success that we had against Washington State where we played a very competitive game against them, we didn't end up beating them, but we were we were awfully close, um, we knew that we had a pretty good team mm-hmm. and that, that 
you know, we were going to make some waves. And we really felt at that point we were the best team in the big sky after destroying Boise. And we started to think about nationally. And we knew that we couldn't drop any games. Having had the playoff experience, we knew that we couldn't lose a game uh, because we had to have the home games that were so mm-hmm. critical. We knew at that point we had enough playoff experience that having those home games in Missoula was was paramount to our playoff success. So, A couple weeks after that Boise game, you go to Northern Arizona. Andy Larson hits the field goal at the buzzer to win, which sort of was a – um, Harbinger. It was. It was yeah. symbolic for things to come, right? And he talked about that in his episode, just talking about how you know he had felt like he'd let the team down a couple times, you know, missing the kick against Delaware. But that was this moment that sort of reset him. But then the next week, he go to the Kibbe Dome at Idaho. He lose to the Vandals. How much of a reset was that, though? Because then after that, you guys destroyed teams. <laughs> I mean, it's like winning games by six, seven touchdowns. So how much was the mentality of the team reset after losing to one of your other rivals in the Vandals? Yeah, well, and, and behind the Bobcats, I would say that that Idaho uh, is probably the, the most disliked team in the Montana locker room. There's there's some real animosity there. And uh, to go over to Moscow and, and have them beat us like that was, was an absolute reality check for the team. And I think, uh, you know, there's – there's this concept of a good loss in sports, and I think that was a good loss. I think that was a necessary loss for us. We, we hated to lose. It stung like hell, but it was important to show us some weaknesses that we needed to shore up. Um, for me, personally, that was, that was a really rough game, actually. I got knocked out of the game about midway through. They had a bowling ball running back. He was about 5'10", 230 pounds, and, man, he was a hard runner. And back in the day, I probably used my head more than I – you would now in football. Right. <laughs> and uh, I remember uh, one one play, he's coming right up the middle, and I plugged the gap and put my head down and hit him, and it, it felt like somebody had stabbed me in the neck. Uh, my whole chest and shoulders were on fire. It was the most incredible pain I've ever felt. Um, and as it turned out, I broke a piece of my vertebrae off, and it was just floating around oh, in there for the gosh. rest of the season, and oh, I've got man. a big scar on the back of my neck where they took it out after the – end of the 95 season. So I played the rest of the season with that floating around where I'd hit guys. Oh, my shoulder would go completely numb. But so that was kind of a reset for me. And then I was in the training room actually the day after the game and Murph's like, uh, he looked at my knee and I had completely torn my LCL and I didn't even know that. Oh my gosh. So that Idaho game, I broke a chunk of my vertebrae off, completely tore my LCL and we got our asses handed to us. It was a terrible day. So <laughs> that sounds like a pretty day. bad yeah. day. Yeah, so I, I played the rest of the season with a knee brace on my right leg and had surgery after the season. But so I think for all of us, me personally, the team, it was a, a reset and a chance to refocus. And we came out sort of doubly motivated to not let that happen again. When you get into the postseason, uh, all the home game, all the games are home games. Uh, some of that is just fate or providence or whatever it is that it landed in landed in washington Grizzly stadium but i mean you're not supposed to just house te- i mean it doesn't matter that you're playing in 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 the arctic circle and they're from texas or what i mean these are the best teams in the country outside of marshall and it's just it's over in the second quarter at halftime it's done did did you look around at some point and go what the hell is going on here how is i mean or did you just go well yeah this is what we do I think at that point it was just like this. This is what we do. Yeah. Um, we were just on such a roll. We were playing such good football and so confident in our abilities. Uh, 
there might have been a little surprise at how we were how badly we were beating teams. I think Eastern Kentucky in the first round it might have been forty eight nothing at halftime. Tom Luganbill, his last college game, poor guy, you know, like we destroyed these guys. The game was over game's over by halftime and, and we're out and we're like, Okay, well, let's see how the next week goes. Georgia Southern's gotta give us more of a challenge than that, right? Well it's forty eight nothing in the third quarter in that one. So uh we really that gave us so much faith in our abilities. I mean, we knew that it was cold and they were warm weather teams and so we had an inherent advantage there but um the weather alone didn't explain the results we knew that we had an awfully good team we were clicking on all cylinders offense defense special teams and well and uh, montana's lost in the playoffs at home on frigid days to warm weather teams yeah south carolina i mean coastal carolina wofford wofford you know that so it it explained i think what it explains is why when it looked like it was going to go bad the tent folded Mm-hmm. You know, the the weather starts to fold your tent up early if it's going bad. But it doesn't make it go bad at start. you got to make it go bad at the start. And, and you did that without fail. I mean, as, as, good, as good as it's ever been done, it's quite literally. I mean, I don't, I don't know that there is a three-game national championship run that has the, the, the aggregate spread that the 95 team had headed to a national championship. I don't know this for a fact. I haven't done the full history on this, but you show it to me, you know, where it's a, it's a million to 14 in three games. Yeah. The 96, that was a pretty good three game run. Mm-hmm. Although I think that one was a little sh- short. I don't know. I think that was like 165 to 25 or something. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, four, 40, soft, soft in 96, four, 48 to three, 44 to 14 and 70 to seven. So, Pretty darn close. How about 140 to 21 in two semifinals, national semifinals of back-to-back seasons? Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, And then you don't play on a neutral site. You go on a road trip, and you go to Huntington, West Virginia, and you you go to play Marshall. Uh, We've heard, I mean, I feel like we've heard as much as you can hear about this game and everything surrounding it, but... There was quite a little bit about some of the pregame quote festivities and teams coming together and maybe things that were supposed to be built up to have a little publicity, maybe a little fun that probably weren't that much actually fun and uh, started to get a little axe to grind early on or earlier on in the week. What do you remember about, you know, the the lead up to that football game? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Marshall is very much like Missoula. I mean, talk about a, a football crazy town. They they love their football. So as soon as we arrive in Marshall, everything is green. Uh, Marshall this, Marshall that, everywhere you go. Uh, our hotel is all duded out in Marshall stuff. The Marshall mascot is there. Like, they're putting on the, the full show to try and intimidate us and, you know, show us that we're not going to be able to beat the entire community, right? <laughs> um, and so – we knew that we had a really tough challenge to be able to go on the road uh, on a national championship and play on turf. That was a big challenge for mm. us, having come from mud and snow and ice and slippery stuff to playing on one of these old, like, old domed AstroTurf yes. fields where if you were on the sideline, you'd look across to the other sideline and it felt like both sidelines were recessed down about three feet from the dome crown in the middle of the field. I mean, they were <laughs> some wild turfed fields, but it played incredibly fast. Um, huge challenge for us. Um, and uh, they, they had a fantastic crowd, but I think the fact that Montana traveled so well, we had the 
the Montana airlift where I think we had just about half of Montana on flights to to Marshall and they were as loud as the Marshall folks. So even though we had, we were away from home, um, we knew that Grizz Nation had our back there. Pretty intimidating Marshall team. So when you first start in that game, was there a moment where you, you, you noticed the tone getting set or that you guys sort of announced your presence like, hey, we might be on your home field, but we can hang in this game? Yeah, absolutely. And and we were super pissed off at Marshall from the night before. We'd actually had a team banquet where mm-hmm. they brought the two teams together. And somebody had this great idea to do karaoke. Well, we went there to play football. There was not a Montana guy that was going to do karaoke. And so then the Marshall team gets up and they do karaoke to uh, celebrate. Uh, celebrate good times. Come on. More like... Wait a minute. You guys think you've already won this game. Like we were sitting there and they're looking at us and taunting us that they're already celebrating. They were certain they had that game in the bag. So we went in that morning. We were super pissed off from the festivities the night before. And uh, they were an incredibly talented team looking at that offense. They had a NFL center. Uh, they had an NFL quarterback. They had two NFL running backs. They had an NFL tackle. Their other tackle was 6'6", 380 pounds. This was an absolutely loaded offense, um, even though they weren't nearly as good as they were the next year. Um, But we we knew right away that we could hang with those guys. And there were some plays early, like Blaine McElmurray just lighting that guy up, Mm -hmm. that really helped set the tone, that we were not going to be intimidated uh, their narrative that they had already won the game was not our narrative, and we were there to to establish our own narrative. This game uh, has a number of memories in it. The hit would be the first, chronologically speaking. Uh, the safety would be another one. But then, obviously, the game, as it came down to it, sort of turned on the offense on, with the drive in the fourth quarter and the kick that, that, that was the game-deciding points. That said... This is a low-scoring defensive battle in general, especially by Montana standards in that year. Did you did you feel the onus on your side of the ball in that game where you've been playing with this offense, just lighting it up for the entire year, and now all of a sudden, oh, man, we're the ones who are going to have to hold here in order to give, give our team a chance to win? Absolutely. Absolutely. That that Marshall defense, as good as they were on offense, they might have been just as good or better on Loaded. defense. I mean, rewatching this game, yeah. the, the physical the physicality of the team and, and just the size and speed combo, especially that front seven, was I mean, it's still remarkable to watch twenty five years later. Yeah, they they had a few NFL guys on that on that D line and linebacker unit and uh so they, we knew that our offense was in for a long day. Dickey was under constant pressure. The offense was out of sync. Uh, they were really having a hard time moving the ball and scoring. Uh, fortunately, we were having success on defense, and we knew that as a defense we were going to have to hold the line until our offense could sort of get up to speed with their defense and get into a rhythm. Uh, we always felt confident that our offense could do it. But we knew as a defense it was going to be more incumbent upon us to win that game than probably the others in the playoffs, that we were going to have to hold it down. And we came in at halftime. I remember we come in as linebackers, and we're sitting there with KV, and the realization hit us, like, 
It's 10-3. We're beating these guys. We can beat these guys. We don't have to play our best game. We just have to play mistake-free football in the second half, and, and we will win. So we were very confident at halftime that this was a winnable game, that we were going to come out on top, but we knew we had to hold the line on the defense. Is there a uh, – there's a lot of plays that peep everybody remembers and, and thinks about, but is there a play for you that you were a part of, that you were involved in, that, that stood out to you where you're like, oh, wow, okay, that's like a memory I'm taking with me personally from this game? Uh, two plays stand out to me, one good, one bad. Um, the good one was there was a rollout. Chad Pennington was rolling out, and uh, I came up, and – Johanse and I hit him at the same time and just absolutely depleted Chad. And and Chad's actually a good dude. Like we had a good time like interacting with Chad that game, like throughout the game. Yeah. He was just a nice guy. Um <laughs> and even the following year when he was redshirting, he like hunted us down on the sideline. He's like, Hey Mike, good to see you. Glad you're you know, like so he was a good guy. But so like lighting up Chad Pennington was was a highlight, and actually there's a picture of that play that was in the on the front page of the Huntington West Virginia newspaper the next day so I have a picture of it on my wall but so that was a good play um, on the negative side I, I still kick myself for this but there was a fumble maybe in the second quarter and I jump on the ball and somehow within the, the scrum Chris Parker their running back grabs the ball and took it from me I could not believe it I don't to this day, I don't know how he got the football from me. I felt like I was pretty proud and how strong I was. But he wrestled that ball away from me, <laughs> and that just tortured me the rest of that game. I'm like, oh, no, is that the play that's going to make the difference in the game? <laughs> right. And it still tortures me. I watch that game. I'm like, no! <laughs> <laughs> so I think about the good ones and the bad ones. How about the safety when the two Butte boys converge on Pennington and score you two points? Oh, my gosh. That, that was so awesome because not only was that the difference in the game, uh, and it was the defense that was making the difference in the game with such a huge play. But Brian Toon and Randy Riley were my roommates. They'd been my roommates since freshman year. We, we lived together. So to have my roommates and my best friends make the play that I think turns the tide and wins the national championship for us, was that was incredible. I still just about speechless thinking about it we talked to both of those guys but i was teasing brian too and earlier saying you guys should just rent out a bar in butte and just tell that story to whoever wants to show up because there's probably no town in the world that's more proud that the two butte guys got the safety in the national championship game right no that that's pretty awesome and those guys will go down as as butte legends and it's it's pretty funny like uh that we were roommates and I they're still best friends to this day and I think the world of them but uh, a pretty funny side story to that was freshman year we all move in together and at one point Dave Kempfert and I we relay the story about how we were over and viewed our senior years for the state basketball tournament and we remembered running into a group of Butte guys at a gas station and they were like well that's terrifying Right, to start, to start yeah. with. So right there, you know you're in a bad situation. And and they're like, hey, you guys are from Hellgate. You guys should, we're having a big kager up in the hills. You guys should come with us. It's awesome. And Dave and I kind of huddled and we're like, mm, something ain't right here. Uh, let's say no. So we said no. Didn't think anything of it. And then 
you know, next year later, we're roommates with these guys, and they're like, oh, yeah, we totally remember that night. We tried to get you and Kemford out to the hills. We were just going to beat the crap out of you guys. <laughs> it's like, ah, you butte guys. <laughs> so it, just for fun, cruising around, fun. trying to get somebody, yeah. so trying to throw a couple blows. Yep, yep. So the fact that it was the two guys from Butte, America, that really sealed a national title for Montana, I think, was as fitting as could possibly be. Managing the security of your business network is a full-time job. Why not take it off your daily list of things to think about and call Blackfoot Communications? With Blackfoot Managed Security Services, you can tap into our expertise to deploy, maintain, and monitor your network security from the edge to the endpoint. Spend no more time worrying about safe business transactions and communications. Call today, 541-5000, or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot, connect to more. Didn't quite seal it, though, because then all of a sudden it comes down to the very last waning seconds. So where were you when Andy Larson lines up for what then became the game-winning field goal? Yeah, I, I was on the field. I was on, uh, on field goal unit. I was a right wing, so I'm the last guy out on the line of scrimmage on the right side. So it's my job to block down and block out and block a couple guys. And Falls is the other wing. And... Um, from 25 yards out, we, we went onto that field confident that Andy was going to make that kick. He'd made enough big kicks in his career from McNeese, NAU. Uh, we were confident that Andy was going to make that kick. We just needed to do our job as blockers. Tuffinelli needed to get that snap down, get the hold, and everything was going to go smooth. Um, and surprisingly, the kick was tighter than we thought it was going to be. It was pretty darn close, as Andy would tell you. But uh, it, it went through and... Did you see it, or were you too busy with your assignment to like pay attention to actually where the ball's at? Uh, you can hear the kick, and as soon as the kick is off, then the head swivels to the uprights yeah. to see if it's going through. Um, but until I heard that ball and knew that I had done my job, uh, I wasn't going to lose my focus. So I had to make sure I got my blocks like never before. But even then, it's not over, over, right? You got 39 seconds left. So do you remember that? Because we, we spoke with Brian Toon. He says, honest to God, I don't have any recollection of what happened after the kick during the game. Like none. So it's all just a blur. What was it for you? Uh, it, it was a bit of a blur. Uh, I remember them getting some more plays on kickoff and some running plays maybe than we wanted to. And they actually got up around midfield and ended up trying, I think it was like a 60-some yard kick, yeah. you know, to try and try and win it, just a desperation kick. But, yeah, we, we had a job to do. Our, our work was not done once that field goal went through. And, uh, you know, we knew that if we do go do our jobs, these guys aren't going to drive the field and, and win. But, uh, boy, it was closer than we wanted it to be, I'll tell you. Well, close but no cigar for Marshall because – Montana wins the game 22-20, the first national championship in the history of the university. And for you, a Missoulian, a, a legacy guy playing, you know, in the same school as your as your father and and breaking through with that team in that way, emotional for everybody, maybe particularly so for you, maybe not, I don't know, what was it like? What did, what what experience did you have in in the moments after it was a done deal? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I still remember everything about 
their missed kick and, and everything that ensued. And I don't know why I did this, but my reaction once the game was over uh, was to go over to the Marshall players. I Like all the Grizz guys, it, there are those two kind of like long photos after the game, yeah, one yeah. from the end zone, one from the sideline, immediately after the game. And you can see just the big group of Grizzly players and I'm actually over by the Marshall sideline, and I'm over there like giving guys hugs and patting them on the helmet. Like, <laughs> it's okay, guys. You just about got us. Like, there was something in me where I just had to go over and look those guys in the face afterwards and, you know, be nice, but maybe rub it in a little bit, you know? And so in those pictures, I'm way far from my team over there, like talking to these Marshall guys. Um, but then, yeah, I, such an emotional deal with with my family um, and uh, a lot of friends there, so many people from Missoula, uh, the coaches and players, my goodness, it's just a, a swarm of emotions. There were tears and so much joy. And to see Don Reed uh, win a national title still just about brings tears to my eyes to make old Papa Bear that happy and uh to win that title for him, that was that was incredible. So it was very emotional time. We uh, every there's there's shocking, right? That nobody has said anything but the best things about Coach Reed, but we haven't really spoken about him with you. What 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 made him special to you? Like why was he such a like an avuncular, lovable, caring guy? And yet, in the context of this fiery football thing that you're doing, yeah, he's. Coach Reed was a bit of an anomaly in the coaching ranks. It, we knew he was a coaching genius. He'd literally written the book on the passing game, right? right. Yeah. So we knew that this guy knew his offense. He knew the passing game. He was he was a passing game genius. Uh, we never saw that as players on on the practice field. He was he was like a grandfatherly figure, you know, he was the one who was always walking around with a big bucket of vitamin C, you know, he was pimping out vitamin C all the time. You need some vitamin C tablets. He wanted to make sure none of us got sick. So he would pass around, he would have a tub, like a 10 gallon tub of vitamin C that he would hand out to us. And he would refer to us by number. Hey, 4-2, how you doing, 4-2? He needs some vitamin C. And, you know, and so that's true. He couldn't remember anybody's name, right? I think he knew everybody's he name. Just he just didn't identify you by name. He never identified us by name. He never let on to that. Um, and he was just funny. When he would address the team, he would just say funny things. And he had these funny characteristics. Like one of the great quarterbacks we faced in the league well, that he faced in the league was Jamie Martin, who yep, went on Weber to have a, from yep. Weber State, had a great NFL career. And Coach Reed would just break into Jamie Martin, Jamie Martin, Jamie Martin. You know, <laughs> he'd just like be over there chanting this guy's name. And he would just do things like that where everybody would laugh and chuckle. And he made things lighthearted. He made things fun. You, you rarely ever saw that veneer break where it was, he was anything other than just like a supportive grandfatherly figure. He was Papa Bear. Um, but then we would talk with like Cavey about it and be like, so what's Coach Reed like, you know, behind the scenes? And he's like, don't think that the Coach Reed you guys see is the Coach Reed, right? Like he was very much a hands-on coach in the coaching meetings, mm -hmm. uh, but 
in front of the players, he was very strictly hands-off and let his coaches coach, um, which I think they probably really appreciated. Um, it's, it's interesting to me because sometimes you know, we talk, especially in college sports, and maybe football in particular, that the team takes on the persona of their head coach. And football being a high-energy, high-physicality game, sometimes coaches that don't have that, or maybe coaches feel like they need to have that, that they need to be, you know, the, the, the fire and brimstone, the yellers, the, the, the energy and emotion behind it. Uh, and, and rarely do you see a guy with the disposition even today of a guy like Coach Reed. So why was it that he was able to be that? And yet your team was still able to go out there and play with a real edge. Uh, I, I think that's what made our team, one of the primary things that made our team so great was how close we were, how tight we were. We loved each other. Players loved each other. Players loved coaches. It, it was an absolute family. Uh, and you were not going to let down your coaches. You were not going to let down your teammates. And that came from Coach Reed, the uh, sort of this ability to really care for your teammates, that you're not just on a football team, that it's something much larger and more important than that, really came from Coach Reed. Um, and it, we, we didn't get fire and brimstone from him. That's, that's not what we got from him. We got, we got love and support, and that's what made our team so great. We got the fire and brimstone from the assistant coaches. We got the fire and brimstone from each other. We didn't need him for that. You get back to Missoula, I'm sure the party was epic. But at what moment did it sink in that you yourself, a Missoula native, but also this group of guys, by and large, from small towns in Montana, had just captured the ultimate trophy, had just captured the national championship? It was, it was among the most nationally prominent things anyone from Montana had ever done at that exact moment. So when did that sink into you guys? Uh, a little bit after the game, uh, just on the field in the moment. But... Uh, once we got back into the locker room, Coach Reed had the trophy, and he addressed us. That that was a really big moment. But it took getting back to Missoula and seeing the impact on the community and the impact on Grizz Nation where it really set in what we had done. And actually, our, our charter flight was about a half hour late getting back into Missoula or leaving Huntington because the NCAA does random drug tests after all the playoff games. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I... I would like dehydrate myself during games. And so they're like, yeah, you got to pee in this cup before your team can get on the plane and go home and celebrate. And I sat there and looked at that cup for probably 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest of the team was like, come on, let's go. We got a party in Missoula. And so uh, finally was able to provide my test and we hopped on that plane. And to get back to Missoula, it absolutely blew my mind as somebody born and raised in Missoula to see so many people, see people out at the airport and the scene around town that night was incredible i mean a lot of it is a fog but there are points of clarity uh and all of us in our silly blue track suits uh and if you had a blue track suit on that night that was like you you could do anything you wanted and from dancing on the bar at bodega to free drinks like we we felt like we were kings of the town and that just you know was an out outpouring of love and support from the community it was awesome 
I'm interested in this aspect, and this is unique to you and your story, but we talked about your father, Bill, as a player, but also uh, he's a, a prominent businessman in this town, you know, at that time and the president of First Security Bank and was one of the the sort of ringleaders, especially going back even before 95, of, of trying to secure home games because, you know, when you talk things about, uh, 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 you know, you have to put in your – what, what do you call your it? Your, your guarantee, your, your bid guarantee in order bid. to get mm-hmm. the deal. And the university wasn't sure if they were going to be able to cash that check, depending on fans and things like that, if it's a Thanksgiving weekend and that sort of thing. So do you were you privy to that stuff that it was going on and that your father was involved in this way and doing things with his business and other businessmen in town to 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 bolster the university and especially the football team? Uh, no, I really found out about a lot of that later. Um, I, I knew that there were people in the community who were providing these bids and I like Gordy Fix and Jim Palmer and Mm -hmm. some of these folks that were really instrumental in that. And it wasn't until later when I was done playing that I really found out the role that my dad had in that as well. I think he, uh, you know, he never talked to me about it. My mom never talked to me about it. They just wanted my focus to be on football and, and my thing and not distract from that. So yeah, that, w- that was really something to kind of find out later, the role that he and the bank had played and all of that. What was, you, what was your experience like with your, with your folks after the game in, in, in this sort of full circle moment that, that took place? Uh, boy, a lot of hugs, tears from my mom. Uh, the, the look of pride in my dad's eyes is something that I'll never forget. Yeah. Um, how proud he was for the team and for me. Um, yeah, that's that was a highlight moment between myself and my parents. They they knew what that meant to me, and my parents never missed a game of any activity I ever did. They were incredible supporters, and so it felt like all of those games all of those years led up to that moment that that was the pinnacle and to have them out there and to share that with them and that that was awesome that was awesome grizz greats the silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions is sponsored by first security bank and coulter while first security has long been a supporter of the university of montana and um athletics People might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second ever berth in the Division One AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division One AA playoffs. And at that time, first-round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so to help support the Grizz football team, as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And, of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 national championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25-part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 national champions for Security Bank a proud supporter of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana.
come back 1996 for your senior year, now the dynamic has completely shifted. It's no longer Montana trying to climb the mountain, but all of a sudden now Montana sits atop the mountain. The Grizzlies are the number one team in the country. You are the defending national champions. What do you remember about the dynamic shifting from being maybe the, the chaser to then the team that's being chased? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't think in the moment we really saw it as a big shift in dynamic. I think for us it was just a continuation of what we mm-hmm. were already doing. Uh, just keep doing what we're doing. Spend the off season to get even better, stronger, faster. Um, so it, the moment never felt too big for us. The the ranking never felt too big. It felt like that's where we needed to be. That's where we were supposed to be. Fortunately, we had this foil in Marshall. They were number one. We were number two. It kept us really motivated. Like if we're going to win the national championship, we've really got to play our best. And so, I think that helped us stay sharp. Uh, but there was no doubt that as soon as the 95 game was over, class of 96 was getting together and already figuring out how we were going to become the greatest team in Montana history. And that was absolutely the goal in 96. And, you, I mean, you win a national championship, you can't do better than that. But I think that maybe, you know, a lot of people would argue that possibly that was the case anyway. I mean, that 96 team was absolutely loaded right I mean all, all the way through how much fun was it to play that 96 season like 95 you know you're good but you're working towards this thing 96 you go I mean it's it's not even a thing we're going to we're just going to roll everybody that we play yeah and and we we kind of knew that and we knew that we had to I mean we we weren't cocky we weren't arrogant we were just extremely confident mm-hmm. again even in 96 we'd get on the field and there might be teams that outclassed us athletically but we knew that what we had built in that program our team was going to win the day um so yeah we just we knew that we were quite good in 96 but um I, we we stayed humble we stayed sort of vanilla as Don Reed would say, and really focused on the end goal. And we didn't get it, but I would say, you know, to go 14-0 and or whatever we did, um, that was a hell of an accomplishment. And we came up short in the last game, but um, I think there's a pretty good reason for that with the transfers they had, Cresser and Moss. And I think they had like 11 NFL guys on that yeah, team. Yeah, that, so. was, that was, uh, was a loaded football team. Uh, you talked about building the program. You're a lifelong Missoulian. When you look now, 25 years after the fact, at that team, that national championship, and then what became of Montana football, just simply dominant from that point forward, what do you think about about your your place, that team's place in in the arc of this program and this school and this state? Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly Grizz football didn't start when we started playing we're we're part of a a long line of players within the program and we all sort of build upon the success or failure of those that have come before us and so uh you know we were already standing on the shoulders of great players you know that there were some loaded teams those teams in the late 80s you know the the quarterbacks that came through with Grady and Brent Pease and the incredible linemen they had and receivers and linebackers like they they had some loaded teams so we we were standing on their shoulders already um i would say we didn't have the the pressure there wasn't the expectation to even win the big sky much less a national title so we didn't have the burden of that pressure 
But I think we also didn't have the inherent advantages of a program that was like hitting on all cylinders. We, we really kind of needed to build that ourselves. The facilities weren't in place. The facilities now, they make recruiting so easy. Recruiting is a different game than it used to be. So I think for the program, the success that the team has had in the last 20 years um, is is good in so many ways. But there's probably a, a certain burden of the expectations that come with that that we simply didn't face in, in our era. When you watch the Grizz now, what is the biggest change? I mean, what do you see that's the biggest difference in the product on the field from when you were playing? Uh, I'll tell you, I watched those games today, and those guys look really big and really fast. <laughs> really, really fast, good. right? Like, yeah, these, these guys are just getting bigger and faster, and it it's really impressive where the program has gone since our days. And it, it just feels good to know that maybe we had some some part in helping move it along and create a standard we got to get a picture of sammy kim and matt wells standing together that would be nice because <laughs> you got six four two twenty you're gonna have and, to and stand five, about seven one fifty feet away to get them both <laughs> in it uh but you could do it for sure uh mike i think people would be interested i certainly am in uh in your life since graduating the university of montana i know you're a missoulian and that but what what have you been up to? What's going on with you beyond, uh, you know, attending as many Pearl Jam shows as you can, which is, <laughs> I think, a very good priority to have, I must say. It makes you among the top friends of the show on Two Till yes, it's, no it's the one thing we can all come together on very easily. It is a high priority for me, and it remains that way, guys. Um, but outside of Pearl Jam shows, uh, as soon as we got done playing football in 96, uh, my wife and son and I, we moved down to Berkeley, um, spent five years in California, went to law school down there and uh, became a member of the California Bar. And in 2002, I got the opportunity to move back to Missoula and work with Garlington, Lawn and Robinson here in Missoula and took that opportunity in a heartbeat, the ability to, to raise our son here in Missoula and provide him some of those things that, that we had growing up. With. We weren't going to pass on that. So um, we moved back in 2002, and I actually switched from being a practicing lawyer. I've got into real estate development. So what I do now, I actually have a, a home office, which works great in a pandemic, I guess. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I buy and renovate affordable housing. So kind of the HUD projects that one thinks of. Uh, I buy and renovate and preserve those as affordable housing. So Fantastic. That, that is my gig. And outside of that, uh, our son Alec is, is 26, and he's a fantastic young man. And so spend a lot of time with, with Alec. He's doing great here in town. Um, get out and recreate. We try and get to the lake and get some hunting and fishing in and do some of that. But really, we're just happy to be back here in Missoula and have the opportunity to go to Grizz Games, and hopefully we'll have that again here soon. So you do the math real quick. So he, Alec must have been born right around the 95 season, or I guess maybe a little before? Yeah, he was born in uh, January of 94. So okay, okay. Yeah, and, and we had our, our house that we called The Firm. It was myself, Randy Riley, Brian Toon, Mark Hampy, David Sermon. And looking back, we, we kind of lived in filth. Uh, but, uh, at the time, we didn't think anything di different of it. And, you know, Alec would just be sitting there on the couch with us, this little little guy in a bundle, you know, hanging out with these college guys. Uh, he would he even came to some team meetings, you know, when I needed to fill in and he'd come to team meetings. Um, I remember the 
our team picture in 95, I had cauliflower ears, so my ear had been pierced and sewn back up and had a bunch of tape on it. And so we had like a team picture and I had Alec with me and somebody had taped his ear up and <laughs> just like this adorable little guy. So I was like the guy on the team that had a little mini me. You got to have had, like a mascot. I had my of. little guy and yeah, it was, that was awesome. And so all of my best friends, I mean, they've known Alec since yeah. the day one guy, mm, you know, yeah. he was over hanging at the college house with us and in meetings with us. Yeah. Fascinating. When you look back on that time in your life, what influence did it have on the last 25 years and then who you became and what, what you're doing now today? Uh, that's, that's a good question because I, I know that I took so much from my time playing football and my lessons at the university in terms of how to create and achieve goals and work towards goals, how to work well with others, how to foster a team spirit and to be creative among a group of people. Um, I mean, I, I took so many of those lessons that made us successful in football and tried to apply them in law school and in my career as a lawyer and in my career as a developer. So I carry those things with me every day, and I, I think it's made me a, a, it's a huge part of who I am today, plus just my love for, for Grizzly athletics and Grizzly football. Uh, I, I love it as much as I ever have. It means as much to me as it ever has. And so I try and stay involved as much as I can, not only from being a fan, but I do Grizz Kids uh, with Mike Rankin and Brian Tripp and Tim mm-hmm. Polich and uh, a group of other guys. Uh, so I'm staying involved in the program that way. Um, Andy Larson and I, we spearheaded a, the 1995 team gift a few years yes. ago, which was fantastic and a great way to reconnect with the old teammates and to have an impact on the program that gave us so much. Um, so we, I look for different ways to, to try and stay involved and support the program. Absolutely fantastic. Mike Boucher, Mike, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. It's awesome to talk to you. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun, and, and this was a real pleasure and an honor to be able to come and talk to you guys. Thank you.